Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. 1,000 acres of state forests will go up in smoke this spring. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources is carrying out prescribed burns in Morgan Monroe and Yellowwood State Forest over this next month. DNR Resource Specialist Mike Spaulding says three locations totaling over 600 acres of Morgan Monroe and a 1,430-acre patch of Yellowwood will be burned. The acreage would have a, a perimeter around it, and so um, ignitions would occur within that acreage. Uh, not everything would burn due to you know varying uh, soil moistures and fuel moistures within there, um, but the objective would be uh, to have a cool to moderate ground fire uh, running through there, uh, surface fire, and so the, the targeted uh, species would largely be uh, the beaches and, and maples in the oak understories. Um, some of the other benefits of that is uh, the extra light that is introduced into the herbaceous layer as well. The prescribed burns will be carried out in Morgan Monroe State Forest and Yellowwood State Forest over the next month. Indiana DNR says the burns are necessary to provide ecological opportunities for Indiana's native oak and hickory trees. The Brown County Parks and Recreation Department is in hot water after selling woods to a timber company that then clear-cut a scenic overlook. At least one acre was logged along both sides of Highway 135 south of Bean Blossom. The Brown County Parks Board heard commentary from irate community members during a public meeting late last month. According to documents provided by the Brown County Democrat, the county sold the timber along North 135 Overlook to Crowder Hardwood Properties for $13,000 in December. The area was along a scenic overlook north of Nashville. Comments by the Brown County Parks Board indicate board members weren't aware Crowder would clear-cut the area, but the contract, which was signed by Parks Director Mark Shields, said that Brown County Parks and Recreation agreed to sell Crowder, quote, all timber within the area the buyer discerns as usable now standing, unquote. Shields declined to speak to WFHB about the sale of the timber, along North 135 on Monday. He said it's possible that the department may be looking into some legal action with regard to the clear-cutting of the woods along the scenic overlook. The Brown County Democrat reports runoff is becoming a concern in the area due to spring weather and erosion. Indiana has a wildlife corridor program. 
One subject of focus are the grassland and roadside pollinators next to rights-of-way along state and interstate highways. The program also protects 100-year floodplains of the state's rivers. Goals include promoting the growth of wildflowers, creating habitats for pollinators such as bees and butterflies, and eliminating invasive plants. There is considerable focus within Indiana on making sure there are habitats suitable as stopovers for migratory birds. Goose Pond is an example of an area devoted to habitat for thousands of migratory birds, including sandhill cranes, snow geese, and shorebirds. One area that often escapes concern is the migration of non-bird species, such as reptiles and amphibians. As the climate warms, these animals will need to move north in order to find the right temperature balance. There are no paths for them. Our grid design of roadways presents them with kill zones every mile or so. A partial solution would be to declare some waterways as corridors and making 100-year floodplains of the Wabash and White Rivers non-development areas. In western states, the issue of migration corridors has high visibility. For example, Yellowstone National Park does not provide sufficient food for its large animals through the entire year, so some grizzly bears must migrate out of the park to find food on cattle pastures. Wolves also migrate out of the park to find prey where they risk being shot. There are attempts to create safe areas outside the park. A new study from the U.S. Public Interest Group, or PERG, shows that the glyphosate, the active ingredient in Monsanto's weed killer Roundup, is present in 19 of 20 beers and wines, including organic ones. The only drink tested that contained no glyphosate was Peak Beer Organic IPA. A toxicologist from Bayer, the parent company of Monsanto, notes that amounts of the wood killer found in alcoholic beverages are below the safety limits for glyphosate set by the EPA. However, USPIRG asserted that chemicals aren't necessarily safe because regulatory agencies say so. For instance, in one study, researchers found that a minuscule amount of glyphosate, quote, has the potential to stimulate the growth of breast cancer cells and disrupt the endocrine system, unquote. Last year, in the first case to go to trial against Monsanto over Roundup, a jury decided that exposure to glyphosate had caused the plaintiff's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The World Wide Web celebrated its 30th birthday on March 12th. While the Internet has undoubtedly shaped today's world, but environmentalists might wonder, what is the impact on the environment? In 2014, Greenpeace published a report stating that the fossil fuel impact of all of electricity-run devices amounts to approximately 2% of global carbon emissions, equal to the emissions put out by the global aviation industry. In 2014, tech giants Apple and Facebook had made commitments to power certain operations on 100% renewable energy, and Google claims to purchase its power from 100% renewable sources. But the lion's share of emissions comes from the Internet use, and as Internet access expands and global population increases, the environmental price will depend on how homes and businesses are powered. What about the impact of the Internet on environmental activism? 
Doctors Luis Estres of UT San Antonio and Jill Hockey of DePaul University write about how the Internet has transformed climate change campaigning and lobbying. They point to successful online organizing campaigns, including the Guardian's, quote, Keep It in the Ground, end quote, campaign launched in 2015, and the flurry of engagements between activists and stakeholders on Twitter during the Paris Climate Accords. On an individual level, Internet access allows for smarter consumption. The web makes it easy to research which companies and organizations divest from fossil fuel holdings, where supermarkets source foods, veggies, and animal products, and how the ingredients of common household products affect the health of people and the environment. The Internet is a major source of environmental information for members of the public and data for scientists. There are efforts to crowdsource data on weather and climate change, citizen soil and water monitoring programs, and the location of migratory wildlife through winter bird and monarch counts. Big data from healthcare and insurance companies has allowed for the identification of cancer clusters and environmental health problem areas through mapping. Much of this data is created and hosted using internet technology. The crucial importance of data sharing online was underscored by the Trump administration's removal of climate data from government websites. Groups of concerned scientists and citizens, such as the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative, work together to preserve archival versions of this data. Volunteers continue to monitor and document new changes to EPA, OSHA, and related websites. The manufacturing of billions of Internet-ready devices creates dangerous conditions at mines and refineries in countries that guarantee little or no protection for workers or the environment. And just a short time after they are manufactured, our Internet devices are decommissioned and contribute to the significant environmental impact of e-waste. When an old phone or laptop finds its way to a landfill, Heavy metals and toxic chemicals are released into the groundwater supplies and the atmosphere. These issues have led to advances in recycling, but according to the UN's annual Global E-Waste Monitor, only 20% of the world's e-waste is properly recycled. Entrepreneurs who salvage e-waste risk exposure to substances like lead, zinc, nickel, flame retardants, barium, and chromium. Global Internet use is forecasted to increase. It will be up to forward-thinking, environmentally conscious entrepreneurs and regulators to freeze or reduce the footprint of both physical devices and of users' everyday Internet habits. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Don Guerra. Support for EcoReport comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976 offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd near College Mall, West 6th near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. On today's show, we air an excerpt from this week's Interchange, Can Growth Be Green?, Environmentalists raise concerns about the Green New Deal. Let's listen. For EcoReport and WFHB, this is Dan Young. 
In early February, freshman Congressperson Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez introduced the Green New Deal House Resolution 109. 89 Democratic congresspeople also co-sponsored the 14-page non-binding resolution. The bill outlines a national socioeconomic transition that would seek to massively reduce carbon emissions while providing improved economic security for all. But some environmentalists are concerned that the Green New Deal also calls for a major expansion in the economy, including industrial manufacturing, production, and consumption. In late February, I spoke with a couple of environmental writers and activists who have serious ecological concerns about the Green New Deal. Don Fitz lives in St. Louis, Missouri, where he has taught environmental psychology at the university level and written on environmental issues for a variety of publications. I got in touch with Fitz after coming across a 2014 article published in the national left-wing news outlet Counterpunch. Fitz's article was titled, How Green is the Green New Deal? It provided a history and critical analysis of different Green New Deal proposals developed in America and Europe since 2008. During our conversation, Fitz detailed some of that history. The Green New Deal in the early 2000s was actually developed by international financial policies uh, like the International Monetary Fund. The Green New Deal originated in Europe as a way to expand capitalism and expand production by producing things that were called environmental. I also discussed ecological concerns about the Green New Deal with Stan Cox. Cox is a plant geneticist who works for the Kansas-based Land Institute, an organization that promotes ecologically sustainable agriculture. Cox is also a prolific environmental writer who has authored three books and written articles for publications including the Washington Post and the LA Times. I discovered Cox through an article he had published in both Counterpunch and the online magazine Green Social Thought. That article was titled, That Green Growth at the Heart of the Green New Deal? It's Malignant. During our conversation, Cox explained why he does not think it will be possible to have the simultaneous transition to renewable energy and the massive manufacturing boom called for in the Green New Deal House Resolution. Rapid reduction in greenhouse emissions will mean that we need to reduce our fossil fuel burning and fossil fueled electric capacity much faster than it's possible for the renewable energy to grow, to replace it. And good part of our energy and resources are going to have to be walled off for building up of the renewable energy capacity, which will further reduce the pool of uh, energy that we have to work with to run the rest of the economy. So there's going to be less energy available, which means there's not going to be enough to launch into this uh, manufacturing boom. Cox said the challenges that we would face during a serious transition to renewable energy could be similar to those during the armaments buildup of World War II. There, too, we had a situation where one part of the economy had to be walled off, in this case for war and armaments production, and then the rest of the economy had to live on what was left. There there was something called the War Production Board that diverted resources to products or industries that were needed, and they shut down industries that were producing unnecessary goods. Then that resulted in in shortages of some stuff, and then rationing was, was required. 
But Stan Cox doesn't just think that industrial and economic growth will have to be curtailed temporarily during a transition to renewable energy. He also believes that to avoid environmental collapse, we need to shrink industry and the economy in the long run. It's growth and not fossil fuels that is the, the fundamental problem here. There's no such thing as infinite growth for any organism or population. The goal of present-day economies is infinite growth. That With capitalism, if there is no growth, it cannot function. So what we're trying to do, and in the Green New Deal is another case of that, is to try to pull back within ecological boundaries, but let the economy continue to grow as rapidly as possible. And that, that just it can't happen. In my discussions with Don Fitz, he raised similar concerns about economic growth. Fitz repeatedly highlighted the environmentally destructive nature of overproduction of manufactured goods. Fitz usually tied that overproduction to so-called planned obsolescence or the process of making items to intentionally break or go out of fashion rapidly so that people will be constantly buying more. Fitz put forth major reductions in production and consumption of manufactured goods as a solution to both global warming and numerous other environmental crises. When I asked how he thought this shift could be accomplished, Fitz focused in on several policies, with one of the most important being reducing the work week. If you offer people the choice, do you want a shorter work week or an accumulation of objects, many people will choose the shorter work week. That's what people want. People want more free time. They want more time to be with their friends and their family. That's the way we need to win people over to this. Fitz also called for regulating industry to get rid of planned obsolescence and retooling urban areas for maximum walkability. We really need to have standards where everything is produced to a maximum life expectancy as possible. The other thing the government needs to do in cooperation with communities, every community in the United States can be turned into a social community where people have the things which they need without driving a car. We need to bring back having local stores where people buy things that are within walking or bicycling distance. So there needs to be a massive urban redesign. Both Don Fitz and Stan Cox expressed support for the environmental and social justice goals in the Green New Deal. However, they also expressed the view that these could not be achieved without also pursuing a reduction in the size of the economy and of industrial manufacturing and consumption. Because of its broad scope, the Green New Deal House Resolution 109 has been referred for review by over a dozen different congressional committees and subcommittees. Those reviews are still ongoing. For EcoReport and WFHB, this is Dan Young.
Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And up next is In Nature. This is In Nature. You have to turn the mic way up in order to pick up this sound, but it's the echolocation signal of the Indiana bat. Indiana bats live in hardwood forests and hardwood pine forests. It is common in old growth forests as well as agricultural land like croplands and old fields. Overall, the bats mostly live in forest, crop fields, and grasslands. As an insectivore, the bat will eat both terrestrial and aquatic flying insects like moths, beetles, and mosquitoes, and midges. The Indiana bat spends summer months living throughout the eastern United States. During winter, however, they cluster together and hibernate in only a few caves. Since about 1975, the population of Indiana bats has declined by about 50%. Based upon the 1985 census of hibernating bats, the Indiana bat population was estimated at 244,000. About 23% of the bats hibernated in caves in Indiana. The Indiana bat lives in caves only in winter, but there are few caves that provide the conditions necessary for hibernation. Stable, low temperatures are required to allow the bats to reduce their metabolic rates and conserve fat reserves. These bats hibernate in large, tight clusters, which contain a, a few thousand individuals. You've been listening to In Nature. This week in our listening area, learn how to reduce waste and produce nutrient-rich compost for your garden 
at the Backyard Composting Basics class on Monday, March 18th from 6 to 7.40 p.m. at Hilltop Gardens at Indiana University. That's located at 2367 East 10th Street in Bloomington. Register by March 18th. For more information, contact Sarah Mullen at the City of Bloomington. A Goose Pond birding tour will take place on Wednesday, March 20th, including transportation. Meet at the Endright Center in Ellettsville at 7 a.m. and return around 1 p.m. You will have the opportunity to see pelicans and whooping cranes and more. Please call the Endright Center to register today. Sycamore Land Trust will host a hike at the Laura Hare Nature Preserve at Downey Hill Sycamore in Brown County on Saturday, March 23rd from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. The north and south trails in the preserve are very rugged and cross several creeks. Plan to dress for the weather, wear sturdy boots, and bring a bottle of water. RSVP is required at Sycamore Land Trust. Come learn about backpacking opportunities, become acquainted with common backpacking equipment, and get tips on planning and packing for a backpacking trip on Saturday, March 23rd from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve with a class on Backpacking 101. Dress for the weather and wear sturdy, closed-toe shoes for a one-mile hike following instruction. Meet at the Boathouse. Register at bloomington.in.gov parks. The world is full of sounds, just waiting to be heard and explored. Learn about the chirps in the trees, the howls during the night, and the whistle of the wind. Meet at the Woodlawn Shelter in Bryan Park on Saturday, March 23rd, from 3 to 4 p.m. to soothe your soul with nature's symphony. Register by March 19th at bloomington.in.gov parks. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Sarah Vaughn, and Rebecca Mueller. Thanks to Interchange for today's feature excerpt. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Kirsten Payton engineered today's show. The script editor was Rebecca Miller. Jan Walker is our producer. And our executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, in nature, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra.
And I'm Todd Wicks. And this was Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 